For almost 50 years, Albania was in the grips of a brutal communist regime led by dictator Enver Hoxha. During that time, tens of thousands of Albanian men, women and children were persecuted, imprisoned and murdered. Many more died because of horrific conditions in prison and forced labour camps throughout the country. Today, 30 years later, there are still over 6,000 people still missing. There are no memorials for them, no justice, and many families do not know where their loved ones' remains are. The Memory Files will take a snapshot of 12 of these stories. Over the next year, we will go beyond the statistics and take a look at who these people were, what their lives were like, what went so wrong, and how their families have tried to cope with the tragedy of their loss. Our first story begins on a hot summer's day in an old neighbourhood of Tirana. The house, with its splendid balustrades and beautiful garden complete with a wall of jasmine flowers and a small turtle, was built in 1931. Next door is the home of Nazmi Ali Orizzi, the man who will be the subject of today's interview. I bowed my head and I descended three stone steps into the cool first floor of the house. Dating from the early 30s, its exterior is finished in the Italian style typical of the period. And the interior has stone floors and low ceilings divided with old wooden beams. To my left sits an ancient black enamel sewing machine. And to my right, with his back to the door, sits Husan Dachi. The air is cooler here than outside, where passers-by suffer under the brutality of Tirana's midsummer and midday sun. Natural light floods in through a large window and illuminates the features of Husan's rugged face. At 81 years old, his sight is failing, but he greets us with a warm smile and an outstretched hand. Husan Dachi is a retired engineer. Born on the 11th of July, 1940, his family originate from Debra in the north of the country. His wife, Mimosa, is from Skodra, and they've been blessed with two children. These days, they live a quiet life in the northern part of the city, but their presumed idyll is overshadowed by a terrible tragedy and a great injustice. As we start the interview, the words flow out of Husin's mouth with gusto. It seems as if no one has asked him about his family's tragic history for many years. He starts by introducing himself and his family, speaking with pride as he recalls their names, origins and dates of birth. But when he comes to mention the name of Nazmi, his demeanor shifts. One of my uncles was Nazmi Ali Orizzi. He was born in 1904 to a Debran family and they lived in Manastir in Macedonia for a long time. But after World War I, Nazmi went to the French Lyceum of Korcha, where he shared a room with Akil Sakichi from Debra and Fari Dabula from Jurakasta. He goes on to explain that these men attended the same school in Korcha, at the same time as the future dictator Enver Hoxha. Husin explains that it's likely they were in the same class, as Hoxha mentioned the three boys in his memoirs, referring to them by name and saying that things ended badly for them. 
After Nazmi finished his studies, he traveled to France where he studied dentistry. Unfortunately, his studies were cut short due to a lack of funds and he returned to Albania after just two years. He then won a scholarship to study in Italy and was reunited with Achille and Fari at the Military Academy of Rome. After graduating, they earned the, the rank of lieutenant in the Guardia di Finanza and served in Albania for many years. But sadly, Husson explains, it was these glittering careers that would ultimately be their downfall. Nazmi worked as a border commander at various custom points, including Skodra, Shenjin, Durez and Pokredets. Husson describes him as someone who loved books passionately, particularly Dostoevsky and his masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov and Crime and Punishment as well as Leopardi, Parini, Carducci, and others. He explains that Nazmi was a quiet man, often engrossed in thought, and he was someone who was Puritan in his approach to honesty. The intellectual, as Husson calls it, got engaged in 1934 to a young woman, also from Debra, called Ifet Strazemiri. They were married a year later, and in 1936, their first child, Aphrodita, was born. She was followed after two years by a son, Ali, and then in 1943 by a second son, Mentor. They had a happy marriage. Aphrodita had dark hair, dark eyes and porcelain skin. Nazmi had blue eyes with thick lashes and brows and a head of bushy hair. A photograph of their wedding days taken by the Albanian master Marubi shows their youth and fine attire. Ifeta in a delicate dress from Italy, Nazmi in his lieutenant's uniform complete with a sheathed sword. Husin explains that they lived well, as Nazmi's position was a respected one. They lived in good conditions because as a border commander and later captain, he was paid well with Napoleon gold coins, he explains. This state of ease and comfort continued until October 1944. Previously occupied and a puppet state of Italy, by 1944 communist partisans had gained control of much of southern Albania. On the 29th of May, the communists called on the National Liberation Front to attend the Congress of Permet, which chose an anti-fascist council of national liberation headed by Enver Hoxha, to administer and legislate Albania. By the end of the summer, the communists had defeated the National Liber Liberation Front and entered central and northern Albania. A provisional government was formed in Barat by the communists, and Enver Hoxha was appointed as prime minister on 18th of October 1944. After the formation of this government, Hodja sent orders to Tirana to settle the matter of officers working for the previous regime. This, Husin explains, meant that Nazmi and his two friends were to be executed. Nazmi, Akil and Fari were preparing to join the partisans at Daiti, as they were aware the communists would soon enter Tirana and it would be liberated. They'd managed to negotiate through a man called Sami Koka to receive immunity and security for their lives. On 28th of October, two couriers came from the communist command on Daiti, led by Dali Nudreo and Mehmet Shehu. Three friends were escorted by the couriers, 
headed, they thought, for the commander deity, but they were never seen again. The 28th of October was the last time their families heard anything of them or from them. They searched in vain through November, December and beyond, trying to find out what happened to the three men. Even when the regime of Hoja was established in Tirana and the family made requests to the administrative bodies and directly to Mehmet Shehu, they received no answer. Hussein explains, No straight answer was ever received. They evaded questions and it was implied that the three men were executed. They're still missing after 77 years, he continues with sadness. Nazmi was just 40 when he died. He left behind his loving wife and three children, aged eight, six, and just one years old. Then, just a few months after Nazmi's death, his son Ali suffered from acute appendicitis, didn't receive proper medical care, and passed away as well. Afadita, the girl, was forced to drop out of school and find work to support the family at the age of 14. Iferta started working in a tough manual labour job to provide sustenance for her children. Mentor managed to complete his studies as a mechanical engineer, but he was refused prestigious positions afforded to those without a bad biography. But one of the most damning facts to emerge from our interview is that Nazmi was executed despite being a close relative of Enver Hoxha's wife, Nizmiya Hoxha. Nizmiya's father and Nazmiya's mother were brother and sister, an extremely close family tie between Albanians during this time. Hussein explains that Nizmiya was well aware of this link and yet did nothing. Furthermore, when the news of Nazmiya's disappearance broke, she never visited the family. Again, something very shameful in Albanian tradition. Not only was Nezmir a close relation to Nazmi, but Husin's mother, Fatima, had taken care of Nezmir when she was a baby in Bitola. Husin said, When my mother died, the truth is she came to pay her respects at my house. But for all other cases, including Nazmir, she didn't come. When my father and uncles died, she didn't set foot in her house. There was complete silence from her. In terms of how they were treated, Hussein said they didn't face too much persecution. But when he spoke about their life during those years, you cannot help but wonder if his perception of their reality had been warped and almost normalised. He said, In our house, as the family of Nazmi, the communist state sent 14 others to live here. They sent an Egyptian family with seven members and another family from Korcha. Nazmi's widow was left with one room and a shared bathroom for 20 people. It was tragic from this point of view, he said. Hussein added that the family suffered extreme poverty from the moment Nazmi was executed and they struggled to survive. But, he said, their time during communism could have been much worse if it wasn't for the protection of a communist called Shafa Oineti, who lived nearby. Hussein explained that he protected around five or six politically persecuted families in the area, mainly from Debra. Hussein said he was a sincere man. He had the prestige of being a communist and he protected us a lot, as much as he could back then. He protected our families a lot from deportation. 
Out of six families living nearby, three had members who'd been executed, he told us. But what about the family's search for justice and answers as to Nazmi's fate? Houston said, after the fall of the communist regime, Nazmi, Fari and Akil, all three who had the same tragic and painful end, were declared martyrs of democracy. Their names are on a memorial at the headquarters of the politically persecuted. They were decorated by the president with the title Honour of the Nation. But the paradox is, they're accepted as vi victims of communist terror, but still today, their sublime sacrifice is not known. Hussein explained that despite these titles, there is no official line on what happened to them or where their bodies are. He also said he's aware of at least 40 others who were executed around the same time, between October and November 1944. He said, many of them were executed, disappeared and missing. It's tragic and unfair that these families are not recognised for the right compensation. Those executed without a trial at this time, their end is more tragic than those executed but where a trial took place. At least they had the opportunity to speak out and defend themselves, even if they weren't successful, he explains. For people executed after trials, even if they were shams, the families generally know where the bodies and remains are. This was not the case for Nazmi's family, and it's cast a long shadow over their lives. Nazmi said, Whenever October and November came, my mother used to cry for one month for Nazmi. She would shed tears for his tragic end, Husen said, adding that his mother died in 1988, meaning she mourned the loss of her brother for 44 years. He said, she had a great deal of compassion because he was a very gentle family man. The research that we did over the years didn't yield anything, he added, shaking his head. Hussein talks of rumours and newspaper articles that mention Nazmi's fate over the years, yet there is still nothing concrete. He said that they could have been shot in the northeastern area of Tehran and near the Lana River, but the family has never, ever been able to confirm the exact date of their execution. Documents only state the day they were presented to the communists, the 28th of October, 1944. They didn't even have the courage to admit they executed them, he adds with disgust. He spoke at length of the witch hunts conducted by communists right until the end. He also spoke several times about the fact that killings by communists started before the formal date recognised in the history books. Interestingly, the Albanian government recently passed a law forbidding the Institute for the Study of Crimes and Consequences of Communism to study any events or crimes committed before November 1944. The Institute had previously worked on studies of communist crimes and activities covering the period 1941 to 1944. They argue that this period is crucial as it paved the way for the regime. One study included 265 names of communists involved in shootings, burning of houses, robbery and murder. The current government, led by the Socialist Party, who are the direct descendants of the Communist Party, opposed the report's publication and then later imposed the ban. Husson said, Yes, the killing started before, before the formal date that's known. What is this formality? At least 30 or 40 were killed during October and November 1944, 
before 29 November. And yet, why is this 29 November considered the beginning of the communist regime? It began on 24 May in Permet, he said with anger in his voice. As we came to the end of the interview, I asked him how he feels about Nazmi and what he remembers of him today. I was just four years old when he died, but I remember him, talking to him. I have a great affection for him. I remember I had a dream that I still remember to this day. I dreamt he came to me, but I realized that it wasn't real when I woke up. I was always so curious about what happened to him. In terms of the rest of the family, he said they're running out of time and hope that they may ever be able to find out the truth. Nazmi's only surviving child, Aphrodita, who is now 85, is still holding on to the hope that they will find, if not justice, at least information. Mentor, the younger son, died eight years ago. Husson explains that he died with a great pain in his heart over the lack of justice and dignity for his father. He explains that Mental would say, what is dignity when my father is ignored? We need to regain our dignity. Our interview comes to a close and Husson sighs. All losses of life are painful, but without name or grave, without justice, without motive, leaving the family in misery with three children, the youngest just one year old, at such a young age, just 40, Sublime sacrifice is the ultimate sacrifice.